For Jesus, that is the foundation upon which all other sexual standards are based. So that when we eliminate a male-female requirement for sexual ethics, we pull the rug out from the entire structure of sexual ethics given in scripture. Sexuality plays such a central role in our lives, particularly in our culture today. But some Christians want to distort Jesus' teaching on the topic. Now, Robert Gagnon is considered the foremost scholar on the traditionalist perspective. His credentials are from an Ivy League system such as Dartmouth, Harvard, and Princeton, and currently serves as a professor at Houston Baptist Seminary. He is the author of The Bible and Homosexuality Practiced, Text and Hermeneutics, and co-author with Dan Villa of Homosexuality in the Bible, Two Views. Dr. Bobby Conway asks some tough questions on same-sex actions and the Bible's teaching. Bobby and Robert, over to you. Well, Dr. Gagnon, it is wonderful to have you on the program here at Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be on, Bobby. I've really enjoyed your work, and I've had the opportunity to listen to you engage in uh, several of the debates you've had. And boy, you are in the lion's den. And at times I have thought to myself, I would hate to be you, uh, and you, there you're standing up and you're trying to convince people, uh, you know, I don't hate you, I'm just trying to share what I believe, and it is very intense and emotional. Uh, how do you handle those environments that you get in? I mean, do you go home and just feel like, boy, you know, what am I doing, Lord? I think over life, God has prepared me to have a little bit of a thick skin on such matters. I knew what I was getting into when I got into this issue, but I also felt, I mean, I appealed to Chariots of Fire movie and Eric Little's line, but I, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Well, when I did this, I felt the Lord's pleasure. That is, it was something that the Lord impelled me, motivated me to do. I really couldn't do any other. And so I knew things, bad things were going to come out of that in terms of worldly, a worldly sense, but you just have to say, God is bigger, better, more important. And you leave everything else to the side, right? What did Jesus tell us? Um, don't be afraid of humans who can merely kill the body. Fear God who can send both body and soul to hell. Now, of course, I don't just fear God. I love God. I understand God loves me intensely. But there's a recognition that what God regards as important, important has to take preeminence over everything else. Yeah, yeah, well put. You know, one of the things I'd like to start the program off, uh, you, you are known as the heavy hitter on the, you know, traditional stance as it relates to the homosexual discussion in the Bible. Uh, and that has cost you greatly uh, with some criticism uh, from people who, you know, vehemently, you know, would reject your posture on that as a biblical scholar uh, and the one who literally that even on the other side, people would recognize that you really are the one who has written a seminal work on this point and you're offering a lot of content, hundreds and hundreds of pages. And so what I'm about to ask is going to be a very tall order uh, and there's no way that you will be able to accomplish it 
But for those who are listening, uh, we would have you think about looking at the debates, looking at the online content that Rob has provided, reading his book. But let's just kind of give the audience an overview of, you know, what your research was about and what you wanted to uh, unpack in your writings to help the church and to help scholarship to understand what's going on in the Bible as it relates to same-sex intercourse. When I began writing, I began writing because there was inadequate material out there defending the biblical position. I had begun discussing the issue at churches because the PCUSA at that time, which was the uh, denomination behind the seminary I was now working at, was mandating discussion of the issue around the nation. Basically, it was, let's keep talking about the issue until we can change our position, then we won't talk about it anymore. But at any rate, that led me to be writing on the issue, be putting some thoughts down that I, I didn't think that was already out there in the literature. And um, eventually it grew from, you know, a 50-page article to a 500-page book. It's a sort of Pandora's box in one sense because one opening one door leads to another door, which leads to other doors, etc. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you really begin to see that sexual ethics plays an enormous role uh, in the biblical witness about the way that we ought to live, which should hardly be a surprise to us, given the amount of attention that we give to sexual matters uh, and has been so in all societies and especially in our own today. So obviously it's a very important issue and it's interwoven with all other issues. For Jesus, I've argued that it's the basic foundation for sexual ethics, according to Jesus. Positively stated, um, sure. the negatively stated, it would mean no homosexual practice. Positively stated, it would mean that there is a foundation of God's intentional design of a sexual binary, male and female, two complementary sexual counterparts that God has created for sexual pairing. For Jesus, that is the foundation upon which all other sexual standards are based, so that when we eliminate a male-female requirement for sexual ethics, we pull the rug out from the entire structure of sexual mm -hmm. ethics given in scripture. Mm -hmm. That's why it was so important. That's really what ultimately my work has been about trying to show the church that this is not just an ancillary issue that you can tease out of other orthodox biblical perspectives on sex and expect to maintain the building. It's not going to happen the whole edifice will come down. And a secondary, well, really, I guess, maybe you could even say primary side of this is how it affects our relationship to Jesus. If Jesus believed that a male-female prerequisite was the foundation for all sexual ethics, giving it primary importance, then if we are to say no to that, in one, what meaningful sense can we call Jesus Lord any longer? Hmm. 
we've mm. we've rejected the very foundation of sexual ethics for him, which was so primary. You know, the side it's like again, this illustrates the point of the Pandora's box because yeah, <laughs> did, no Jesus care, did Jesus even care about sex? A lot of people would argue, based on his outreach to sexual sinners, that he did not. They construe Jesus's compassionate, loving embrace of sexual sinners, his intentional fraternization with them, as Jesus not really caring about issues of sexual purity. In fact, that's the viewpoint adopted by the Pharisees with regard to Jesus. That's right. They construed his outreach to sexual sinners as indicating he did not care about God's sexual demand. But of course we know that that's entirely inaccurate. That as far as sexual ethics is concerned, Jesus actually tightened God's sexual demand. He closed the remaining loopholes that existed in the law of Moses, conforming God's demand for sexual ethics now to God's creation will. And if you look at the parallel of the other group that Jesus reached out to, we all know Jesus reached out to tax collectors and sinners, typically sexual sinners. What about the tax collectors? Tax collectors were persons in the first century Palestine who had a justly deserved reputation of collecting several times over what they were required to collect for taxation by the Romans and pocketing the excess for themselves, leaving people already living on the economic margins, fellow Jews, now in a state of dire circumstances with regard to whether they will survive. Liberation theologians would have a field day today with persons of that ilk. And yet Jesus reached out aggressively in love to these tax collectors. Now, do any of us conclude from Jesus' outreach to the tax collectors that Jesus was soft on economic exploitation? Right. I don't know a single person, scholar or layperson or pastor, who concludes that that is the case. We see over and over again Jesus making statements about the importance of a proper use of material possessions and wealth to help others who are in need. And yet, he spent so much of his time reaching out in love to the biggest economic exploiters of his day. Now, if we don't conclude from that outreach to tax collectors that Jesus was soft in economic exploitation, but rather the reverse, not only was he well within the prophetic trajectory, of speaking out against such social injustices, but he actually ratcheted it up. Hmm. Then why would we conclude that Jesus's parallel outreach to sexual sinners was because he was soft on sexual sin? Hmm. It makes absolutely no sense. It's actually the reverse. Hmm. It's because of Jesus's intensified sexual ethic that he reached out in love to those at greatest risk of not inheriting the very kingdom of God whose coming he was proclaiming. That's love. Right. Love is not assuring sexual sinners or economic exploiters that the activity that they're engaged in 
really doesn't matter in terms of their inheritance of the kingdom of God. That could not mm -hmm. possibly be love. That would be a lie. That's right. Not, it would be assuring people that they do not face the coming disaster, which is actually coming. Right? To give a parallel example for parenting, if you have young children and your young children are about to touch a hot radiator or to put their hand over an active burner or to walk across a heavily trafficked street and not waiting for the light mm -hmm. to turn the appropriate color, then you, you're not considered a loving parent by society. You, state social services will remove your children from your home. Yeah. Because regardless of what your personal affect is, functionally speaking, you would be treating your children with hate. We don't get to change the parameters of what is important to God and say mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter to God. For us, love can only be an undiluted expression of the truth accompanied by a reaching out to those who are actively engaged in behavior that put them at high risk in relation to the kingdom of God, not just consigning them to hell and saying, I want to have nothing to do with you, but let's talk. Let's talk about why it is that this is so important to God and why we have to obey God's commands, which are intended for our thriving and good rather than reassure people that we don't have to pay attention to them. So that's a that's a good point. And I want you to keep developing this, but I do want to insert something. I have a little bit of concern sometimes that relates to people that are trying to hold on to Jesus, um, but reinterpret the Bible. I feel like when you think about atheists, for example, or other non-believers, they have the common sense understanding of being able to see things like hell and homosexuality in the Bible. So my question is like, do you encounter people that aren't trying to hold on to Jesus that would say, oh yeah, Jesus, you know, is all for homosexuality because of love. Or do you think it's those who are more likely to profess Jesus and then they're trying to you know, ditch certain ethical aspects of the Bible that they don't want to align with and yet still have the soothing balm of a relationship with Jesus. It comes from many different uh, motivations. And uh, in the end, people take usually one of two courses of action if they want to promote homosexual relationships. They really only have two options. One is to try to claim that the biblical witness is only opposed to exploitative, promiscuous, or idolatrous same-sex relationships. Now, there's no way that can actually be demonstrated uh, for a number of reasons that we could get into. That the biblical witness is indicting homosexual practice per se, just as when it indicts, for example, incest which is one of the closest parallels we can have here because it's another form of sexual relationship that be, can be conducted in the context of love and commitment by consenting adults, but remains wrong even in those circumstances 
because it is sex between persons who are too much structurally in their embodied existence, same or alike, mm. not enough complementary otherness. There it's felt on the level of kinship. In the case of homosexual practice, it's on the level of something even deeper and more significant to sex itself, which is namely one's personal sex or gender. Um, we wouldn't say with regard to incest that the only forms of incest that are being indicted are those that are exploitative or promiscuous or conducted in the context of a idolatrous relation, uh, context. We would say, no, it's an absolute indictment of incest, of course. It's even more so in the case of homosexual relationships. So the attempt to try to demonstrate uh, that the Bible is only concerned with um, some sort of negative brand of homosexual relationships and not with homosexual relationship per se never really does work. But that's the most common attempt because okay. people know that if they if they can't demonstrate that, they really have a hard road to hoe here because they're going to have to ultimately go against Jesus himself. Yeah. But yeah. increasingly, some scholars are acknowledging, in light of the arguments that I've produced and others, that you really can't make the biblical text serviceable to homosexual relationships in any way, committed and loving or otherwise. So in the end, they've had to say, we just disagree with Jesus. Hmm. And... Hmm. Uh, that's a more, in a, one respect, it's a more honest approach, but it also is alarming, right? Because here yeah. are people who are willing to openly state, it doesn't matter to us that Jesus regarded this as an irreducible minimum of sexual ethics, the very foundation. We're going to say that Jesus simply had inadequate knowledge to make that determination. And our view takes precedence over his. Now, I don't know at that point how you can any, in any meaningful sense declare Jesus to be Lord and, and say that Jesus had insufficient knowledge to make the determination about what the very foundation of human sexual ethics in God's eyes is. Because if Jesus cannot be trusted on that, I don't know why you're trusting him on anything else. You're basically looking for a Jesus in both ways. You see, both ways, there's sort of somewhat different approaches. Mm -hmm. But in the end, they arrive at the same view of Jesus, which is that Jesus is nothing more than an ideological cipher into which we impute our own meaning. We have to create a Jesus ultimately in our own image and either say that Jesus, the Jesus of that walked the earth in the mid-first century would agree with our point of view, or we have to say that Jesus now would agree with our point of view if he had the information that's now available to us. In either way, we're looking at an imaginary Jesus that has no bearing with the actual Jesus, a Jesus mm. created in our image and likeness, rather than we conforming our own lives to the image and likeness that God has created for us. Tim here, glad you are checking out this conversation. It is only through your support that we are able to bring you shows like this one. One simple and free way to support the show is to like our video on our YouTube channel. 
While you are there, consider subscribing. Also, check out other resources at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, because what ends up happening is you start, you know, creating this sense where we are limiting Jesus' knowledge. Like if he wasn't aware, then we toy with his omniscience. And then I think about this issue, and like you, you know, my heart would certainly be able to sympathize with anybody that uh, would describe him or herself as gay and, you know, carrying that kind of a cross and hearing from us, it could seem insensitive. I, I understand that. But I could say as one who, you know, is a recovering alcoholic, um, I lived a very promiscuous past. I never heard the gospel till I was 19. And I listened to the messaging that's being coded to our culture. And they're talking a lot about freedom, but we want the right kind of freedom because freedom without boundaries is a recipe for destruction and addiction. And when I think of my own life, I'm thankful that people loved me enough to say, Bobby, you are destroying your life with the way that you're living. And it called me up. I was a slave to my desires. I was a slave to my emotions. And becoming a Christian, a cross-carrying Christian, meant that I had to come to terms with what's going to be Lord of my life, my feelings or what the Bible says. And there are times, if I'm being honest, Rob, I look and I go, man, I sure wish I could, uh, you know, justify this passage. But the fact is, is all of us. And I think that's sometimes the message I hear that is if, you know, the being gay, which I do feel for people that want that. It's not that I, I don't. I'm, I, I want them to feel love from me. But I don't think that other people that aren't gay don't struggle. I think there's married people that are tempted to have an affair. I think that there's single people that are tempted to do different things. So you'll have people say, well, Jesus is love. Jesus is love. And so I guess my question as we uh, continue this conversation is what do we do with that? Like those that will say Jesus doesn't care about sexuality. He never even mentioned homosexuality. <laughs> I laugh. I mean, I try yeah. not to laugh in the context of an actual debate or dialogue with somebody publicly, but inwardly, it's, it's just amazing to think about an aspect of the human condition that takes so much of our time, so much of our energy, so much of the investment of ourselves is going to be something that God doesn't care about. That's absolutely mm -hmm. extraordinary. And it's simply not reflective of the biblical text which shows in so many texts, God's absolute concern and care for how we run our lives sexually. Remember the discussion in, in 1 Corinthians 5 to 7, where Paul, well, 5 to 6, he's dealing with the incestuous man, the man who's sleeping with his stepmother, and then later on dealing with other issues around marriage in, in chapter 7, including the question of divorce and remarriage. And in that context, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you and that you do not belong to yourself, that you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price by the atoning death of Jesus Christ, and therefore you need to glorify God in your bodies? And this all in the context of Paul talking about sex. 
You have to glorify God in your bodies. You're a temple of the yeah. spirits in you. You can't take that body and join it to another person in an immoral sexual union. You are one spirit with Jesus. And you're going to take that union with Christ. And you're now going to join yourself in an immoral one flesh union with another person and in a perverse way bring Jesus into this, defiling the temple that he inhabits and think that you can get away with it. That is truly extraordinary. That's why Paul has viceless at the end of chapter five in discussing the incestuous man or again in six, nine to 10, where he says, stop deceiving yourselves. If you think that you can engage in serial, unrepentant, immoral behavior, including what was the main issue when he's making mention of this vice or offenderless, sexually immoral behavior, you are deceiving yourself. You are not going to get away with it. Hmm. Such persons are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this show, check out Bobby's conversation with Joe Dallas on our YouTube channel. Also, if you had fun or learned anything, do us a favor and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll meet you next time on Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show is sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.